to do that. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and the last part of chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time. So we are continuing through our F260 plan. Last week, we're in the book of James. And remember, I told you it's because James was written, uh, one of the earliest letters written in this, this reading plan. The F260 reading plan is a chronological plan, which means it's following um, the, the order that the books were most likely written. So it's going to get out of order as compared to your Old Testament, New Testament at times. And that's, that's okay, because the way your New Testament, by the way, is put together, it's by category. The four Gospels. Then the book of Acts, which is carrying on the Gospels, and then you start getting into Paul's letters, and then after Paul's letters, and even Paul's letters are grouped in a smaller chunk, but then Paul's letters, and you have the general, what we call the general letters, and then after that, then the, the book of Revelation. So that's the way it's grouped um, for orderliness, but that doesn't mean that's the, the way it was written in order. And so the F260 plan is trying to, to capture when these were written, and at the same time, you're reading through the book of Acts so that some of the uh, activity in the book of Acts is lining up with some of the activity in the letters that Paul might be referencing. So 1 Thessalonians. So Thessalonia um, is a church that would be, um, if you're reading your Bible, it's in the area of Macedonia. All right, and Macedonia is that region where, if you remember from the book of Acts, you probably read that this week, where Paul was, uh, received a vision of a person in Macedonia calling out to him. And so this is where Paul has gone in response to that vision. Thessalonica is one of those, those cities. Um, it is a predominantly non-Jewish area. So this would be um, modern Turkey, uh, that area. So if you think about a map and you think the Mediterranean Sea right above that, this, that, that region, okay? Uh, the, the, the Italian peninsula, kind of, kind of that area. Paul is in a predominantly non-Jewish area. Now, there might be a few Jewish people because they've been scattered, but he's writing to predominantly a non-Jewish church. Now, the issue in Thessalonica was that some false teachers came along, and some false teachers were talking about the return of Christ, and they were talking like the return of Christ had already happened. And so you can see that might cause a problem if you are a believer in Christ and you've been told, hey, you are to, to wait expectantly for the return of Christ, and then now some other people come along and they claim to be followers of Jesus, and they're telling you that the return of Christ has already happened. So now what do you do? You're wondering, was I left behind? Was I, was I not a believer to begin with? You start to doubt everything, right? And that's why Paul is writing this letter, to address those concerns. And so, so see, here's the thing now. So if I'm left behind... And, and, I'm not, and I'm not with the Lord now, that means I'm reserved for the judgment and wrath of God. And so in the book of Thessalonians, and the second one also, the, the two letters, they concern themselves with the return of Christ, the wrath of God, because those two come hand in hand, right? And, and so um, what Paul is trying to reassure them is, one, you've not been left behind. You're not, you're not going to experience experience this wrath of God that is reserved for those who don't belong to Christ. That's not, that's not your destiny. And where Paul starts with chapter 1 is reassuring them of their salvation. And so we're not reading it, but if you, uh, if you look in the first chapter, uh, really I think it's uh, the first maybe three, verse 3 or 4 or something, Paul says, I'm confident that God has chosen you because. And so he's reassuring them of their security in Christ. He's reassuring them that they belong to Christ. And then he's going to give reasons as to why um, he thinks that he is confident in them belonging to Christ. Right? And so we're going to pick up on some of that 
uh, as we read um, verses 6 through 10. And uh, what we're talking about this morning is a, excuse me while all these sticky notes fall out of my Bible from last week there. Um, so where we're going this morning is we're going to be talking about what does it look like for the disciple-making process to take place. Because Paul is going to give us a beautiful picture of the disciple-making process. See, remember Jesus, um, the last words that he left uh, for his followers, which was supposed to be their first effort, was go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. There's a process that's described there. It's the process of disciple-making. And so what we're going to see Paul describe is as he's re recollecting his time with these believers, he's going to remind them of, here's what I saw in you, here's what's true of you, and we're going to see a great picture of the disciple-making process. And so where we're going to start is, what is the pathway of disciple-making? What, what pathway does that follow? If you're going through this process, and we all are, by the way, if you're a, a follower of Christ, you're in the disciple-making pathway. The question is, where are you in that pathway? If you're uh, interacting with other people, maybe you are discipling people and you're working to make disciples of others, you're, you're with them and they're somewhere in this pathway and it's helpful to understand what this pathway looks like. And so take a look with me at verse 6. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, and we'll start there. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul, confident that God has chosen you, confident that God is at work in you because, hey, I remember you, and when, you, when we were with you, you became imitators of us. That is the goal of disciple-making. For, for, now, now listen to this, because Paul would say this in another letter in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the goal. We are, we are making disciples, and the goal is that those, those disciples that we're making, they're imitating us, but that's not where it stops. They imitate us as we imitate the Lord. If they only imitate us, and you create people, followers, disciples, who look and talk and sound like you, but they don't look and talk and sound like Christ, you're making your own disciples. You're not making disciples of Christ. And so Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's your goal always if you're making disciples. Is how can I help this person, these people, follow Jesus better? And the process that I go through must include modeling that, but modeling what it looks like to follow the Lord so that the result is they don't just imitate me, but they imitate me as I imitate the Lord. That's the goal. But I think too often we stop and we create um, mini-me's and we don't want mini-me's. We don't want a bunch of little Justin running around. We want a bunch of people who imitate Justin as Justin imitates Christ. We want a bunch of people who imitate you as you imitate Christ running around, not just mini-me's, right? And so he says, hey, you became imitators of us and the Lord. So Paul says, I see the evidence in your life because you followed our example. Now, now, what's the pathway, though? Look at that next, that next phrase. For you received the word in much affliction. Disciple-making starts. It always starts with evangelism. Always. There's two parts to disciple-making, evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. 
That makes up the process of disciple making. Because before a person can be discipled, they must first be a disciple, a believer in Jesus. And the way a person becomes a believer in Jesus, you receive the word. That's the gospel, right? You receive the gospel. And so all disciple making starts with the gospel being proclaimed and people responding to the gospel as God allows and enables. And then the process of discipleship then begins. But you, you will waste your time if you're trying to grow someone as a disciple of Christ, but they don't yet belong to Christ. All you will do is create a hypocrite. Because they will learn to look like a disciple, talk like a disciple, act like a disciple, but inside, they're not made new. There's no new life. And we've got way too many people sitting in churches that have learned how to talk like a Christian, uh, act like a Christian, look and dress maybe like a Christian, but inside they don't belong to Christ. So they're Christian in name only. And then you, you start creating cultures like that and churches largely produce people like that. And now you've got a group of people who are representing the name of Christ but they don't represent Christ. And you can see then why people would start to have a problem with Christ. Because if you're his representation and I see a discrepancy between what you say and what you do, that's a problem. But if people see Christ in us, Christ living through us, people are drawn to Christ. Imitate, you became imitators of us as the Lord. The process of disciple making starts with evangelism. You proclaim the, the, the gospel to people so that they can respond by believing. Now listen, if you have um, circles of people where you've got people who are not believers in Christ and you're wanting to interact with them and you want to make disciples, which is what we're constantly encouraging you to do and to look for, right? Some of those people, your, your goal is you're proclaiming the gospel, you're modeling the gospel, you're explaining the gospel, you're, you're helping them understand how does the gospel impact your life because in turn, they'll see how it will impact their life. This is why on our Wednesday nights, a couple uh, last month, Russ did telling your story. One aspect of telling your story is how has God gotten a hold of my life, saved me, and changed me? Because as we tell that story, what we're also proclaiming in a, in a story that's told well and rightly is the gospel. So that then the people can hear what changed his life? What did he hear? What did she hear? What is it that she responded to? What was life like before? What was life like after? And they see and they hear pictures of the change that takes place. So the pathway of making disciples starts with evangelism. And that's what Paul did as he traveled around. He first proclaimed the gospel. He would go into synagogues and proclaim it to Jewish people. That would be people who knew their Old Testament scriptures. They were gathered for a, quote, church on Sabbath, on Saturday in the synagogue. And Paul goes in there and he's proclaiming to these religious people who were gathered going through religious motions the gospel because they needed it. Because people sitting in the pews also need to hear the gospel. And sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. And Paul always started there. And then as people responded by believing, then the pathway of disciple-making continued. Now, specifically for this church, um, there was a lot of affliction. Paul says, you received the word in much affliction. In other words, there was persecution. And if you were reading through the book of Acts, you would have picked up on some of this, that the Jewish people were antagonistic towards Paul. They did not like him proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah because most Jewish people did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He had been put to death. And as far as his resurrection of the dead, just rumors as far as they're concerned. 
And so he was persecuted. Um, the other thing is this would have disrupted the, uh, this was under the Roman government. This would have disrupted the average Roman citizen's lifestyle. Because if you were a citizen of Rome, you can worship whatever God you wanted, so long as you also acknowledge Caesar as Lord and Savior. He was one that needed to be acknowledged in the midst of whatever else you can acknowledge. But when you receive the gospel, the gospel proclaims one Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ, and nobody else has room to fit in there. And so if you're a Roman citizen, you had to renounce Caesar as Lord and Savior as you received Christ as Lord and Savior. You can see how that might become a problem and cause some persecution. And so Paul says, I remember that you received the word in the face of affliction. Now, today, if you were not yet a believer in Christ and someone was explaining the gospel to you and you knew a few other people, friends, coworkers, family members who had accepted a Christ, a Savior, and then they were killed because of it, Maybe you're in a Muslim family or a Hindu family. Or they were excommunicated. Maybe they weren't killed, but they were excommunicated, cut off from the family, no inheritance, no association, because now you have renounced the, the God of our family, and now you have claimed Christ, so you've been cut off. Or if you were just generally in an environment that pressured people to not be morally good, and so you becoming a Christian would impact that, and you were feeling the pressure to not respond Chances are, unless the Lord's working in your life, right, you're going to back away from that. Why would I want to become a believer when he just became a believer in Christ and he got killed? When, when she became a believer in Christ and now she's been cut off from her family, right? You, you, you might tend to back away from that unless, unless God does a work that you cannot, you cannot deny that he's doing, right? Well, this church, that's their situation. And yet Paul says, and you received it anyway. Boosts Paul's confidence in the reality of these people in Thessalonica belonging to Christ. Because not only did you receive the gospel, you received it in the face of affliction. You could have backed off. And you did so with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And anytime we come across this, because I need this, um, I would not, you would not typically describe me as a person who's filled with joy. Like that's not a characteristic that you would describe me. It doesn't typically exude from me as we oftentimes think of joy, right? I'm not, I'm not like a happy-go-lucky person. I'm a realist. Some of you who are optimists would say I'm a pessimist, but then I push back and say I'm a realist, right? But, but in that, you, you don't get joy oftentimes in the way you might think of it, but joy is not necessarily uh, always visible on the outside in a happy face, a smiling face, right? A, a happy-go-lucky, carefree type of attitude. Joy is more deep-seated. It's anchored deep down, and regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, you are unwavering in this joy. And you can go through mourning and grieving and sorrow and still be filled with joy. You can see the world in a, in a more realistic perspective and still be filled with joy. You can see the world in a more hope-filled, optimistic perspective and still be filled with joy. What I don't want you to confuse is an outward, um, a surface-level type of happiness with the idea of joy from the Scripture. Because if people are being killed around you for accepting Christ, you're not going to be happy-go-lucky, carefree, but you will have a joy that is sustained through all of that. 
And Paul says, not only did you receive the word in much affliction, but you did so with the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. In other words, the joy I saw in you, you can't manufacture that on your own. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Remember Galatians 5? Love, joy, and peace. Right? So he says, you, re you received it with joy. So the pathway for disciple-making starts with the gospel being proclaimed. A person receives the gospel. They believe. And, and then there's a change in their life. Let's go on to verse 7. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So there was such a change in these people's lives. These, these non-Jewish people who had become believers in Christ. There was such a change in their life that Paul is able to say, you became an example to all the other believers in this region. Because as all the other believers in this region heard about you and the change that took place in your life, they're cluing in and they're saying, that's what we want, that's what it looks like to be believers in Christ. He says, you became an example. There's a change that takes place. Now we're going to dive into that change in a moment. But it starts with evangelism. As a person receives the gospel, they're born from above. There's a change that takes place. Look at me at verse 8. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul says you were, you were so changed and, and you became such an example that one, there's two things happening here. One, the word of God, the gospel sounded forth from you. You're sending people out to proclaim the gospel to other people around you. And you can read that in the book of Acts, how this church was sending people out. Some of these believers in Thessalonica accompanied Paul on his journeys. And so he says, the, the, the gospel came forth from you. The word of God was coming forth from you. A person who has, has, has gone through a conversion, a change. They're in this disciple-making pathway where they've received the gospel. They've been changed because of the gospel. Now they go forth and proclaim the gospel. He says, you are sounding forth the gospel. But not only that, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even have to say anything about you. In other words, people have heard about this change. We don't have to say anything about you because people already know. Now, the town of Thessalonica was a strategic town. It's a port city, and it was a very popular port. And it was near a road that traveled throughout the region a very um, high-traffic road. So people would come in and out of Thessalonica to travel as, as they would come into the port and they would leave the port or they're traveling through on this, this high-traffic road that would go by. And so word was, was spreading because as people would come through, they weren't staying there because they were just passing through. They were doing business and then they were moving on. And so the opportunities for these believers in Thessalonica were great because they could proclaim the gospel to people who came through, and then those people would keep going through, and then they would take the gospel to other places. This is a transient type of ministry. And I want to talk about that just for a moment, because um, a transient type of ministry where you've got people coming and going, and they're not really staying long-term. Like, if you think about a church congregation, the majority of a congregation typically plants themselves and stays put. And you have a few people who will come through here, and then business or, or, or life will, will move them forward. I, I think uh, I was thinking about this this week, and um, we've had a few occasions where we've been able to get up in front of you all as people were leaving because of jobs and pray for them and bless them on their way out. 
I love doing that. I hate seeing them go. But I love doing that because most of the time we don't know why people leave the church because people don't want to tell you why they leave the church. And usually it's, it's for a reason that could be resolved if we would just sit down and have a conversation. But when people are getting moved because of job or something else and they've been faithful while here and you've seen them grow, it is such a blessing to be able to say, we want to bless you and pray for you as you go and minister wherever you're going to go. I was uh, reminded, some of you will remember the Wheelers, Brady and Adrian Wheeler. He works for One Oak. Uh, they came down from Kansas, and we, we had them for a couple of years here. And to watch them grow, and then to keep tabs on them, and to see they're still plugged into a church. They moved down south to Oklahoma. To see them plugged into a church there and continuing to grow. I love seeing that kind of thing. Maybe you can think of some people, if you've been here for a while, who, who they were here, they were here for a while, and then a job or something moved them on. But now where they are, they're continuing to grow, and they're continuing to impact people. That's one of the joys of people transiently passing through. Right? But it's a challenge, right? Because how do, I, how do I build momentum over time? I think of Redlands, Redlands Community College. We've, we've been involved there for a little over eight years now, and Redlands is a two-year college. People are coming and going, and it's a commuter campus for, for, in a large part. So a lot of the students drive in for their class, and then they leave for the day, and they're not staying. That creates challenges for ministry because you, you start to, to build momentum with someone, and two years is up, and then they're going on somewhere else or they're leaving the college, right? There's challenges in transient ministry, but there's also great joy and great opportunity because as you pour in and you invest in, take Redlands for instance, and you invest in these college students for the time that you have, you are sowing seeds that when they leave there and they go to another school to finish their degree, or they move on and they go into their vocation and they're, they're living their lives and they're starting their families, if the, if the Lord is watering those seeds and bringing about growth in those seeds, then that investment is going to be producing fruit. And there's an opportunity for those people to then go and replicate that and to go and make that same impact and investment somewhere else. Uh, military is another great opportunity. One of the reasons I love being uh, as part of the military, and by the way, for me, the military is primarily missions. That's one of the main reasons I joined. Is it's a mission field. You know, a missionary um, gets into um, a culture that is foreign to them, they usually start to dress like the culture. They start to learn the cultures of language. They start to, to um, take on the culture's uh, mannerisms and traditions so that through that culture's language and mannerisms and traditions, they can communicate the gospel. The military is its own culture. We have our own clothing. We have our own language. We have our own mannerisms, customs, and courtesies. And we have to figure out uh, how to communicate the gospel in that setting. That's why I do that. And, and the military is a challenge because with the military, people are leaving. They're deploying or they're PCSing. They're changing stations, so they're moving to another base at some point. And so you don't have a whole lot of time that you would like to have with someone. But the beauty of it is, and the, and the joy and the opportunity that's there, is that as you invest in these people, as, as the Lord brings about growth, then they deploy and they're with a whole different group of people. Or they change stations and they go to a different base. And they're with a whole group of people, different group of people. And, and if the, the Lord is bringing fruit about in their life, then they're going to continue to replicate that and it spreads. Last time I preached at Tinker, it's been, it's been, I think, two years now, maybe one year. I don't remember. I didn't preach there this year. Um, but what I, what I did for them is I tried to cast a vision for them about what it looks like to make disciples in their setting. Because it's real easy for the people that attend the Tinker Chapel to just gather, attend chapel, celebrate their veteran status, and then move on. It, it needs to be a lot bigger than that. 
right? You can do that at a VFW. You can do that somewhere else. But if you're gathering as, as a chaplain, you're proclaiming to be followers of Christ, you're making other followers of Christ. And you have an opportunity. I tried to put that before them. You've got people living in dorms. You've got people living in housing. If you could only make some connections and start making disciples, these people will leave, yes. But you have invested in them, and that investment gets multiplied, gets multiplied, gets multiplied. And imagine what type of change takes place when, when from the ground up, like a grassroots effort, people are being changed, and then they go and replicate that in someone else's life, and, and they replicate that in someone else's life. Multiplication is far better than addition. Two becomes four. Four becomes more, right? It just starts to multiply. As opposed to, well, I had a large group. I impacted five out of that large group. Now I got another large group, and I've impacted five out of that large group. No, if I can start with two, and those two then and go, and they each do two. And then those two that those two, and you see they multiply. And it starts to shape and change a culture. You want to know how to change a culture? My answer is always going to be disciple making. Always. I mean, you can, you can create policies and legislation but it's not going to change people's hearts. It's going to change the surface. It might change the structure. It doesn't change people's hearts. You can go and pick it, you know, and proclaim what you're against. It's not going to change people's hearts and make them angry. But if you will focus your attention and you will be a believer in the circles that you're in, be a follower of Christ in the circles that you're in, and influence the people in the circles that you're in, and make some investments in the people that, that maybe the Lord's opening opportunities, and then they are changed, and then their families are changed, and then as a result, their kids are changed. And then maybe their kids are impacting people at school. And maybe your coworker or, or that person starts to impact other people. You can see as it starts, it's like a wildfire. A gender reveal party gone bad, right? It just starts to spread. In this case, it would be a wonderful thing for it to spread. The people in Thessalonica had this same opportunity. And so word was spreading from them. People were hearing about the change that has taken place. And Paul says, I don't even have to tell people about you. When I go to places, they already know about you. The pathway of disciple-making is it starts with the gospel, it starts with evangelism, and then you work people to become imitators of you as you imitate the Lord, and there's change that takes place, and it starts to spread. But what's the result? And this is where we're going to dive in a little deeper. What's the result of disciple-making? This is, this is one of the clearest pictures of what it looks like for a person to be change. Uh, sometimes we'll talk about that as being converted, right? Um, some religions will talk about converting, and that means you've changed your set of beliefs, and it's, and it's usually a set of belief changes. Now, in Christianity, a conversion involves a, a change in beliefs, but it's also more than that. A conversion is a change of heart. Because a person can adopt a set of beliefs, and their heart's not changed, and they're not converted in the sense that the Bible talks about conversion. They've changed their set of beliefs. So when you hear me talk about conversion, or when you're reading something about the Bible and it's talking about conversion, it's a change of heart. It's that new covenant where, where God says, I'm going I'm to take that heart of stone and I'm going to change it into a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to write the law on your heart so that you will know it. It's this change that takes place. What's the result of disciple making? Look with me at verse 9. For they themselves, these are the people that hear about you, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Let's stop there. So Paul says, whenever we go to other places, they've already heard how you received us. Your hospitality is known. 
They, they've heard about the reception because Paul was in some hot water when he came to this church. He was being persecuted. He was, he was fleeing, and they received him in. And he's saying, people heard about this. You took us in. They, they've, they've heard about the kind of reception we had among you. And then look at this. And how you turned to God from idols. Let's stop there. This is repentance and belief. We talk about repentance and belief. This is the one of the clearest pictures that you're going to find in the scripture of what it looks like for a person to repent and believe. When we talk about repentance and belief, we're not talking about two steps that you have to take in order to be saved. It's two sides of the same coin. Repentance is I stop trusting in whatever it is I'm trusting in and I turn away from that. That's repentance. Now, in turning away from something, you turn to something, right? So I, I don't just turn away from something and then turn to nothing. I turn away from something and I turn to something else instead. I repent from worshiping whatever it is I'm worshiping that's not the true and living God. I turn away from that and I believe in the true and living God. Repentance and belief. I stop trusting in whatever I'm trusting in and I see Christ for who he is and I trust in Christ. Repentance, belief. You turned to God from idols. So the orientation of this church was we're worshiping idols. We're worshiping whatever gods we want to worship. And they probably had several that they worshiped. And then each household might have had like a, a favorite god that they worshiped. And then included in there would be Caesar, right? And so they, Paul says, you turned from those idols. And in turning from those idols, you turned to God. Now, now Paul doesn't say you included God in your worship. This is not syncretism. This is not like, well, I'm going to be a little bit of Buddhist, I'm going to be a little bit of Hindu, I'm going to be a little bit of Muslim, and then I'm going to put these aspects of Christianity in here. That's called syncretism. It's piecing together your favorite parts of different religions and then creating your own kind of religion. We have a mission partner in, ha uh, mission partner in Haiti, and uh, Catholicism in Haiti is not really Roman Catholicism as you and I might have been experiencing with it, but instead it's a syncretized Form, it's a little bit of Roman Catholicism mixed with a little bit of voodoo, mixed with whatever else is influenced. South America, same kind of thing. A lot of the Catholicism and the Christianity in South America is mixed with something else in there. And so that, that we have a tendency to do that in our culture. It's just maybe not as overt, right? And the way we do it in our culture is we'll say, well, I don't like everything in the Bible. Some of that's pretty hard, and I think the Bible's outdated on this issue. It was clearly a cultural issue, and if they could rewrite the Bible now, they would obviously have updated it and included this. And so I'm not going to take that, but I'll take these parts. Like Jesus was a good moral teacher. And I believe generally if, if I follow Jesus' teaching that I'll get along better with people. But um, I'm not going to follow these other aspects. And we piecemeal. That's syncretism. That's not what this group did. Paul says, you turned to God from idols. You left them behind and you turned to God. Their orientation changed. Their object of worship changed. Listen, you are shaped by what you worship. You want to know what a person worships or who a person worships? You can look at their life and you can generally tell who a person, person worships by the way they live their life. If I'm at the center of my world and everything must be my way or no way, or if you, you insult me, you better watch out because you're going to pay I worship me, right? 
if, if money or wealth is my worship, then my life's going to be oriented around pursuing the things that I want to pursue to earn that, that wealth, whatever that level of wealth is. You can, you can know what a person worships by the way they live their life because their life will be oriented around it and will be centered around it. If you are a, a, an idol worshiper in that day, you would do things that would hopefully make that idol happy and you would not do things that would hopefully not make that idol mad. And so when you turn from those idols and you turn to God, your object of worship has changed, which means your whole life changes. So if a person claims to have repented and believed, but their life has not changed, then they're still not oriented around Christ. And if they're not oriented around Christ, they have not changed. They've only changed outward, not inward. Conversion comes with the change. Now, this is clear. Like if you were, today, if you're a Buddhist and you had a Buddha statue or you're a Hindu and you had Hindu statues or you're a Muslim and you turned from that and worshiped Christ, it would be very evident, right? I mean, you would get rid of all those things. But what about if you grew up in Christian culture and you're generally a good person? You live according to Christian standards and morals. It's gonna be a little harder. That's my story, right? I mean, I look at my life before Christ and after Christ and outwardly, immediately, there's not really a whole lot of change because generally I was a good guy and whatever bad I did, I knew how to hide it, right? Because that's how we do it in church culture. We learn what's acceptable and what's not and then we bury the stuff that's not acceptable. But generally, if you looked at my life, you would not necessarily have seen an outward change because I was already living according to Christian standards. There, it's a little harder. So how do I know? I'm, I grew up in a Christian church, but maybe I'm not a believer in Christ. How do I know? What's going on inside? What's going on inside? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your affections? What consumes your time? How do you make your decisions? What's influencing that? What kind of a worldview do you have? What shapes your worldview when you interpret politics, when you interpret world events, uh, when, you, when you think about things? What shapes that most? Is it your personal opinion? Is it your favorite commentator from, from Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, whatever? Um, what, what influences you? If it's not first the scriptures, you may just need to make an adjustment, or it may be, it may be that you've not been changed. If what consumes your affections is not Christ, but instead myself, or maybe if I'm being honest, I have no affections for Christ, maybe there's no conversion that's taking place. Right? Because if I change the object of my worship, there's going to be a change. Admittedly, it is harder to see if you grew up in a church culture. Why you've got to pay attention inwardly? What's going on inside of me? What do I long for? What do I get excited about? You've got to pay attention to those kinds. Of but the results of disciple-making is there's change. There's true change. And so they turn to God from idols. And then, look, they turn to serve the living and true God. Their whole lifestyle changed. They're no longer serving the idols. They're now serving the true and living God. Their whole lifestyle changed when they became believers in Christ. It shaped and changed everything about them. Now they serve the living and true God. Now the way they live the life is dictated, it is informed, it's instructed by what does God say? Who is this God? How does he reveal himself? Because I've got to live a life that lines up with that. And I've got to make my decisions that line up with him. 
and not leave him aside and say, yeah, but I don't like that. I like this. They turn to serve the true and living God. And we keep going in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The result of disciple making is it also changes what you believe. It changes your posture, your disposition, the way you live your life. See, they turn to serve the true and living God and then to wait for his son from heaven. They turn to wait. Waiting is a posture of hope. Waiting is expecting something that's going to come in the future, but that's not here yet. You, you turned and you were turning to serve the true and living God and you turned to wait for his son. In other words, now you're, you're no longer living life just here and now. You're waiting for what is to come. You're living with a view that is farther beyond your current circumstances. You're waiting for the day when the son, Jesus, is going to come back from heaven. It also shows us what they were taught. That Jesus is the son of God and that he will return. I believe in Jesus Christ. God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where he seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, and the life ever. That's, what, that's why we, we, we have creeds, because the, 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 the early church got things together. And they said, what did the scriptures teach? Clearly what the apostles taught was Jesus is returning. I believe in the resurrection. We're waiting for his son from heaven because there is going to be a day where Christ returns. That is the hope of Christianity. Your hope is not that you get to be in heaven with God. That's a great benefit. It is not your hope. Your hope is that Christ, your Savior, will return and he will make you like him, which means you will no longer be ruled and controlled and impacted by sin. And death will no longer have victory because in being made like him, you will overcome sin and death. And even if you've died by the time he returns, which is what this church is concerned about, Paul is going to tell them, you will be raised. That's the hope. The hope is, will death finally win? Is this all there is to this life? Is, is sickness going to ultimately be the thing that do, does me in and then it wins? No. The hope of the believer is that Christ raised, and because Christ raised, all those who belong to Christ will raise. And so we wait for his son from heaven, and we live our lives with that hope, that expectation, our eyes set on that. And it's like if you're doing a, I don't know, some of you might be marathon runners. I hate running. I do it because I have to. But you know, I've only got this distance to run or the finish line's in sight. You know there's an end to the race. It helps, right? As opposed to just like indefinitely running. Or if you're doing a workout and it's got a timed stimulus and you're like, you're as many reps as possible on this. You know there's going to be a time and ending. As believers, we know there's going to be an ending. We don't know when that is. But we know it is coming. And so we live our lives with that. He goes on and he says, this son from heaven whom God raised from the dead. We know they were taught about the resurrection. You cannot have a believer in Christ who does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You can't separate it. When you preach the gospel, it must include the resurrection. It does not stop at the death. 
if Jesus died and never rose from the dead, we've got a problem. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's whole point is if Jesus didn't raise, then we're gathering in vain. What's the point? But he did raise. And so he, he, they, they were taught that Jesus raised from the dead, and then he identifies them as Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Remember, the concern of this church is where we left behind. Did, did Jesus already come, and now, now because we must not have belonged to him, now we're going to get the wrath of God? No, he's been assuring him, you're in Christ. I've seen you become imitators. I, we've heard about all this. And so Jesus is going to come, and he's going to deliver you from the wrath. You're not ultimately destined for wrath which is why Paul would say in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not destined for God's wrath. But listen, let's talk about God's wrath just for a moment. It's not an attractive thing. It's not. But you can't separate it from God. If you have a just God, and we would most likely all say, yes, God is just, you can't have justice in God without wrath towards sin. Because God's justice is in response to those who rebel against them. Those who rebel against them are living in sin. And the way God responds to sin and rebellion is wrath. And yet he's just. And so the, the justice of God is that he will give sin what it deserves. His wrath. And all of humanity is under Adam. Apart from God's grace in Christ. And if you remain in Adam, which means you, you don't belong to Christ, you are impacted by sin, you're infected by sin, you don't have the grace of God in your life, you are under the wrath of God. Paul would say in Romans 1.8, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And he'll go through and he'll start to list that. This is God's posture towards sinful, rebellious humanity. That's really bad news. Because everyone is born impacted by sin. Really bad news. The beauty of the gospel is it doesn't have to stay that way. That yes, God is just. He will deal with sin. And those who don't belong to him will experience his wrath. But God, the just God, came in the form of human flesh, Jesus, so that he could live among the people who he created but who were rebelling against him so that he could then die in their place, taking the wrath of God for those who believe in him sin. God was pouring out his wrath towards sin, so that those who would believe in Christ, Paul could say, you're not destined for wrath. Jesus is going to deliver you from the wrath to come. But that statement can't be made of a person who does not belong to Christ. The statement for a person who does not belong to Christ is, you're under the wrath of God. Repent. The result of disciple-making starts with evangelism. There's a change, there's conversion. People learn to be imitators of you as you imitate Christ. There, there's, there's opportunities to proclaim the gospel. There's a change in beliefs. I'm oriented toward heaven. I'm oriented toward Christ. My, my world is shaped by him, and I am not destined for the wrath of God. I hope. One of the clearest pictures I think you're going to find of what it looks like for a life to be changed, and the question that leaves us with is, is my life have I seen that kind of change in my life? 
Have, have, have I seen desires in my heart change? It's not 100% of the time. That's not, that's not what we're saying. But do you, do you generally see that you're longing to know God more, that you're excited about who God is? And as you grow and learn new things, your, your, your heart is, 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 is quickening inside of you. Do you find that kind of thing happening? Are you doing things that stir up that kind of affection? Have you found that you've, you've started to shape and change the way you view things and it's now run through the grid of the scriptures, the word of God, and not just my personal opinion or how I feel or what Fox News says or what, what CNN or MSNBC says or whatever the case may be, but the scriptures first. Have you seen those kind of changes? That's the questions you should be asking. I've got this up there. We started this last week. Um, if you uh, Feel free to take your phone out, open the camera, and zoom in on that. It's completely okay for you to take your phone out. I'd love to see you be doing that. And, and or you can, if you have a bulletin, on the back side of your bulletin, there it says response, and you can do it there as well. The goal here is it's, it's just like three questions. It'll ask you for your name and an email, and then you don't have to answer all the questions because some of them may not apply. But this is where we want to hear from you. What, what are you, you going to do? What's your next steps? What, what is God saying to you this morning through his word? And, and what is he prompting you to do? For some of you, there's an option there. Are you trusting in Christ today? Maybe you're realizing this morning, I've not repented from, from, from following my own path and turn to God. I need to repent and believe in Christ. Maybe some of you are doing that. Let us know because we'd love to be able to follow up with you and say, we'd like to get you connected with this person or this group so that you can grow in this now. Maybe others of you, are you've got some next step where you are, man, I realize this area of my life is not aligned. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty assured that I'm a believer in Christ, I belong to Christ, but I've kind of slipped or I've never really aligned this area with my worldview is more shaped by, by um, the, the, the politics of the world rather than the scripture. So maybe you're saying, I'm going to start working on uh, reevaluating some of the way I view things. This is a really good time to do that, by the way. November 3rd is coming up. It's a good time to evaluate why do I believe what I believe about? What's shaping my view about? What's influencing me about? And then others of you, maybe there's a, there's a spot there that says, what can we pray with you about? We'd love to be able to pray with you about whatever you're sharing. If there's something else. So please feel free to leave that there. We're going to take just a moment and let this all settle on us. And then we'll wrap things up. Grace, you've shown me grace. You've lifted my shame.
together, we proclaim that in the Apostles' Creed that we believe that Jesus raised from the dead three days later. We believe in the resurrection of life everlasting. Let us be changed by that. Father, I, I desire that this would be a community of people that Houston Church, God, I pray for the other churches in the area that are preaching and standing upon the gospel. They would be known for the type of change that takes place within their walls and in their, their family's lives and in the community because of the gospel. I wonder, God, who, who, is, who is it that's being reported about when, when they're traveling to El Nino or from El Nino? Man, have you heard about the people from? And not for competition, because I don't care if we're the best church. I don't want that. I want us to be faithful. And I want us to be known because we're shaped by the gospel. And, 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 and really, God, when people hear about Houston, pray they don't stay there very long, but instead they're catapulted to you and they're See you guys.